The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. In the last several messages in this David series that we've been looking through, um, we've been looking at the struggles that David has been having in his later life, uh, most of it centering around family problems. And David's failures and sins as a father end up casting a long shadow over his children who will basically end up mirroring those sins. And so that's why following right on the heels of the story of how David forced himself on Bathsheba. We are given this story of how his eldest son, Amnon, raped his half-sister Tamar. And in an act of vengeance, Absalom, his third son, would kill his brother Amnon. And although God had forgiven David for the exact same sin of murder, um, David will struggle to offer that same forgiveness to his son, Absalom. And so in the face of his father's rejection, Absalom will harden his heart to his father, once desperate for reconciliation with his father. Now all Absalom wants is to overthrow him as king. And so over the ensuing years, Absalom will win the hearts of the people. And eventually his rebellion is in full swing and David is forced to flee Jerusalem and once again return to the wilderness where he has spent so many of his younger years. And as I mentioned in the last message, by all accounts, David is not doing well spiritually in this later season of life. There is almost no mention of any sense of David really seeking God during these later years. Rather than leading his armies into war, he lounges in his palace while his soldiers die for him, where he takes more than a casual interest in another man's wife. He is an absent father to his assaulted daughter and a cold, unforgiving father to his wayward son. And so God will lead David back into the wilderness in his later life, where he will once again connect with God and come alive to God in this later season of his life. And so, with his father having um, abandoned Jerusalem, Absalom moves into the capital to establish his government. And so we're going to pick up the story in chapter 16, verse 15 to 19, where it says this, Meanwhile, Absalom and all the men of Israel came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. Then Hushai the archite, David's confidant, went to Absalom and said to him, Long live the king, long live the king. Absalom said to Hushai, So this is the love you show your friend. If he's your friend, why didn't you go with him? Referring to his father, David. Hushai said to Absalom, No, the one chosen by the Lord, by these people, by all the men of Israel, his I will be and I will remain with him. Furthermore, whom shall I serve? Shall I not, should I not serve the son? Just as they served your father, so I will serve you. As I pointed out in the last message, Ahithophel was David's most trusted advisor. He was regarded as one of the wisest men in Israel. But when the rebellion started, he chose to side with Absalom 
rather than be loyal to David. And we also saw Hushai in the last message. When David was fleeing Jerusalem, he tells David, I will go with you into the wilderness. And David says, no, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and serve as my spy there because you will be more help to me in Jerusalem than if you come with me into the wilderness. And Hushai was also considered one of David's senior advisors. And so he obeys David and returns to Jerusalem, basically acting like a double agent, trying to win Absalom's favor, but all the while intending to remain loyal to David. And so at first, Absalom seems suspicious when Hushai comes to him, but eventually he's convinced that like Ahithophel, Hushai has chosen to defect from David's camp and join his rebellion. You know, some have wondered why Ahithophel, who was so close to David, turned on him when Absalom rebelled. And the Bible may actually tell us possibly what happened in Ahithophel's heart. In the listing of the mighty warriors who fought for David, in 2 Samuel chapter 23, we find this interesting clue. It says, Eliam, son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, was one of the mighty warriors of David. Eliam, son of Ahithophel. And then if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2 to 3, look at what it says. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. If you put these two verses together, it is likely that Ahithophel was actually Bathsheba's grandfather. And if that was the case, then it wouldn't be surprising if Ahithophel harbored a grudge against David for what he did to his granddaughter and her husband. The story continues in verse 20 to 23. Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give us your advice. What should we do? Ahithophel answered, Sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father, and the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the advice Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. So the first word of advice that Ahithophel gives to Absalom is this. It's to establish his public image as the new king. And before going further, I just actually want to say a brief word on this whole uh, thing about concubines because I realize maybe some of us in the room actually don't know what a concubine is. Uh, a concubine was basically a woman who was given to a man but had a lower status than a wife and was basically there for the man's pleasure as well as for his status and thirdly, for childbearing. And so when you look in the Old Testament, you find that in the early, earliest days, like around the time of Abraham and Isaac and these forefathers, the tradition of having concubines was rather common. But by the time that you get to the days of David, 
it seems to have no longer been part of the custom for men to keep concubines. The average person who just had one wife, it was really reserved for people in high status, like kings and royal officials, who actually ended up keeping concubines. The Bible doesn't ever outright condemn this practice, but it doesn't mean that the Bible approved of it. If you look at Genesis chapter 2, the Bible lays out very clearly its design for marriage as God intended it between a man and woman. And so, in addition to the multiple wives that David kept, David, we find, has ten concubines that he left behind to take care of the palace when he had to flee Jerusalem. And so, in this brazen act of defiance under Ahithophel's counsel, Absalom pitches a tent on the roof of his father's palace and he ends up publicly sleeping with all ten of these concubines. In those days, there was this clear link between political power and sexual potency. I'm so glad the youth group is out today, you know, because <laughs> this is really kind of veering into rated R territory here. Um, and so... In this just really dramatic fashion that's really just beyond the pale, Absalom will establish to the entire nation that he is now in charge and that he has enough male potency to rule the nation just as he has to satisfy these women. Ahithophel's next word of advice to Absalom is about the military strategy. And so we get to chapter 17 in verses 1 to 4, and it says this, Ahithophel said to Absalom, I would choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he is weary and weak. I would strike him with terror, and then all the people with him will flee. I would strike down only the king and bring all the people back to you. The death of the man you seek will mean the return of all. All the people will be unharmed. This plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. So true to his reputation, Ahithophel actually offers Absalom really good advice. He urges Absalom, strike while the iron is hot and chase down David without any delay, leave tonight and attack him while he is still weak and disorganized and demoralized. His hope was to catch David while he was still on the run and kill only David so that there would be as little bloodshed as possible. And then on top of that, to do it in the cover of night, which would reduce the public visibility of killing the king. And so Absalom and all the other elders hear this plan and they agree, this is a solid plan. But then something interesting happens in verse 5. But Absalom said, summon also Hushai, the archite, so we can hear what he has to say as well. When Hushai came to him, Absalom said, Ahithophel has given this advice. Should we do what he says? If not, give us your opinion. Hushai replied to Absalom, The advice Ahithophel has given is not good this time. You know your father and his men, they are fighters, and as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father is an experienced fighter. He will not spend the night with the troops. Even now, he is hidden in a cave or some other place. 
If he should attack your troops first, whoever hears about it will say, there has been a slaughter among the troops who follow Absalom. Then even the bravest soldier whose heart is like the heart of a lion will melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a fighter and that those with him are brave. So I advise you, let all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, be gathered to you, with you yourself leading them into battle. Then we will attack him whenever, wherever he may be found, and we will fall on him as dew settles on the ground. Neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we will drag it down to the valley until not so much as a pebble is left. Hushai's counsel is almost the exact opposite of Ahithophel's. He first plays to Absalom's fears. He warns Absalom that in a rushed attack, what you're going to encounter is David the experienced fighter, surrounded by his fierce warriors, and he's going to put up a fight like a cornered bear and her baby cubs that were taken from him. And he also suggests that David is not going to be easy to find. He's a cunning guy, and just like Saul discovered, you're going to go there, and he's not going to be there, and you're going to lose the advantage of surprise. And then he says, lastly, at the initial battle, if David's side begins to win, then like so many of his other enemies before him, your armies are going to crumble. And they're going to be filled with terror. And you're going to lose everything. So he first plays to Absalom's fear. And then he appeals to Absalom's pride. And so he says this, listen, don't go out tonight. Instead, take your time and gather a massive army like Israel has never seen. And when he says from Dan to Beersheba, that's the most northern to the most southern point of Israel. In other words, let this army be assembled from the entire nation. And then he says, you lead that army. What's interesting when you read Ahithophel's counsel is that Ahithophel almost makes no mention of Absalom. In fact, Ahithophel even offers, I will lead the troops myself in order to really basically protect Absalom from any danger. But what Hushai says is this. He emphasizes the fact that Absalom will be at the center of it all. In essence, he says, can you picture it, Absalom? This vast army gathered to you, and you will be the general leading them into battle. None of this hunting down David in the dark of night in the wilderness, where no one will even witness your victory. With my plan, you will descend on him with this enormous army so that there is nowhere to hide. And even if David tries to hide in a city, your army will be so large, we will rip down the walls of that city until not a single stone is left and we'll kill not just David, but we will massacre everyone in his camp so that there is not one loyalist alive to oppose you. So it says in verse 14, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the archite is better than that of Ahithophel. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel 
in order to bring disaster on Absalom. The Bible makes it clear that Ahithophel actually offered the better counsel here that day. But Absalom foolishly chose the worst advice of Hushai. And the question is, why? Why? Well, it gets to my first teaching point this morning, and it is this. Because wisdom is more a matter of the heart than the head. You see, the problem with Absalom was not his lack of intelligence or his analytical skills. That wasn't his deficit here. Absalom chose Hushai's advice because Hushai played on his fears and appealed to his pride. In other words, Hushai made Absalom afraid of what might happen if he chose Ahithophel's plan and flattered him with his own plan. In other words, Ahithophel's counsel required the courage to act decisively and seize the moment. But Absalom was drawn to Hushai's plan because it offered minimal risk and maximum glory. Amassing a huge army where he would ride at the very front of it on his horse as Israel's new king. John Woodhouse says this, It is difficult to be wise. As we make decisions big and small, how can we find wisdom? Those of us who have made foolish decisions and suffer the consequences and who hasn't may ask, how can I learn to be more wise? Living life well has a lot to do with wisdom. The difficult thing for all of us is that what is wise and what is foolish often only become clear when it's too late. We call this the wisdom of hindsight. The wisdom of hindsight is usually the realization that something that seemed wise at the time has turned out to be disastrous. The wisdom of hindsight is of little practical value. We need the wisdom of foresight, which is a bit more difficult. This is the problem. Wisdom is a kind of foresight. It involves seeing the consequences of a decision, a choice, or an action. Since none of us can see very far into the future with much accuracy, it is difficult to be wise. This is a major theme in the Bible. Where shall wisdom be found? We all know that saying, right? Hindsight is twenty-twenty. The wisdom of hindsight, hindsight, as Woodhouse points out, is cheap. Anyone can Monday morning quarterback a thing, right? Go, yeah, you should, never should have done that. <laughs> What's easy after you've blew it, blown it and lost and become suddenly the expert who can tell you everything that went wrong with the plan? But real wisdom is the wisdom of foresight before the thing takes place, to look ahead and understand the consequences of the choices that you're going to make in your life? What will produce a better future for me and for others and avoid costly mistakes? <clears throat> you know, in working with other pastors to help them improve their preaching, 
uh, I've pretty much stopped doing post-sermon evaluations. Why? Because after years of doing them, I've actually come to the conclusion that they help very little. Part of the problem is it's hard to take the lessons that you've learned from preaching one sermon and applying them to a new sermon that covers a completely different topic or text. But what I feel is this, that by far the bigger problem, the bigger challenge is this, is that all of us, including preachers, including myself, we're all driven by our insecurities and fears in life. And that results in certain habits that are incredibly difficult to break, even when we know that embracing that change will be for our good, will be for our growth. In other words, even when it comes to preaching better, it's more of a heart issue than a head issue. And so that's why pretty much at this point, when I work with a preacher, I'm only interested in working with someone before they preach the sermon. Because that way I can challenge them out of their comfort zone and stretch them into new directions that they would normally not go on their own. And it's sort of like holding a person's feet to the fire. Let's not talk about what happened after the fact, but what will you do when that Sunday comes and you preach that word to the people? Don't we all wish that we were wiser? Don't we all wish that we could make better choices and avoid painful mistakes? The wisdom of hindsight is misleading because it suggests that the key missing ingredient to making better choices is to have more or better information. Should I quit my job? Should I take that risk and grab that opportunity that's not going to be there forever? Should I confront this person? And the thought is, if only I could have a crystal ball and look into the future, then we believe that we can make better decisions for our lives. That's the wisdom of hindsight. But what the Bible argues is this, that the biggest roadblock to gaining wisdom in your life is not a lack of information or having the right information even. It is the condition of our hearts. In other words, when we are consumed by fear or full of pride, all the information in the world isn't going to help us make wiser choices in our life. And I want to challenge you with that this morning. If you reflect on the bad choices you've made in your life, there may be some occasions where it was an issue of lack of information. I'm not going to totally discount that. But what I would argue is that by far the bigger contributing factor are things that were going on in your heart when you made that decision that ended up hurting you. From a biblical perspective, we can say this. Wisdom flows from a well-ordered heart rooted in the fear of the Lord. Wisdom flows from a well-ordered heart rooted in the fear of the Lord. In other words, what Scripture is telling us is when we get our relationship with God right, everything else in our life can be put into its proper order. 
And the message, the implication here is also this, that only God can bring the necessary order out of the chaos to our hearts. All of the chaos in our hearts that causes all of the poor choices that we make in life, only God has the power to reorder those things in us. It's only, in other words, under God's leadership that we can find the power to overcome our fears and to humble us in the face of our pride. Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In other words, wisdom begins when we acknowledge God as the central reality of our lives. And wisdom at its core is about putting our trust in God and his promises to us. And out of that reorienting our entire lives around that trust. This is why the fear of the Lord is the starting place of all wisdom. And this is the wisdom that David models for us. I've been saying this over and over again through our series in David. David is not our model when it comes to morality. I mean, God knows he's failed really hard and really repeatedly. But in his highest and in his lowest moments, David turned to God as the most important reality in his life. To say that he was a man after God's own heart means that David was alive to God increasingly in his life as he clung to the promises that God had given him. That's why in 2 Samuel verse 15, verse 31, it says, Now David had been told Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. David was utterly crushed by this revelation that Ahithophel had abandoned him and sided with his son Absalom. To David, Ahithophel's counsel was worth 10,000 soldiers. But David had the wisdom to recognize that this was a problem that only God could solve. And so he turned his panic into prayer and entrusted the situation to God. I just want to contrast these two pictures of David. When David was drifting far from God in his later life, in his midlife, the ripple effects of that were everywhere evident in his life. He lost any sense of purpose, sending his soldiers to die for him without his leadership on the battlefield. He dehumanized people like Bathsheba, seeing her as nothing more than an object to be used for his own pleasure. He became a cold and detached father, unavailable to his children when they needed him the most. This is David far from God. And the effects of that distance with God were felt in every dimension of his life. But now, as David once again regains a sense of God in the central place in his life, he gains a heart of wisdom. And the effects of that spill over into his whole life as well. He regains his prayer life, looking to the Lord for his deliverance. He sends the ark back to Jerusalem, refusing to use God's name to strengthen his own cause. He humbly listens to the angry rants of this man, Shimei. 
And as we're going to see in the next message I preach, as he returns to God, he will also recover his love for Absalom that had gone cold. This is the heart of wisdom centered in a fear of the Lord that has the power to transform every dimension of your life, every relationship that you possess, every goal that you've set for your life. And that is the hope of the gospel. As David entrusted himself to God, God showed himself to be worthy of David's trust. That's why in the verse we just looked at a little while ago, 2 Samuel 17, verse 14, it says, Absalom and all the men of Israel said the advice of Hushai, the archite, is better than that of Ahithophel. And then we get this interesting commentary from the narrator. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. You see, up to now, the entire focus has been on the human drama that's unfolding, but suddenly the narrator breaks into the story and he says, do you understand that there's a whole other spiritual dimension that is at play here that's invisible, and that is that God is orchestrating all of this to accomplish his purposes to look after David in his life. And the problem is no one else can hear this narrator. No one else knows this invisible dimension. And so everyone is just acting out of their own instincts. But David, by faith, believes this and knows that God is at work in his life. And so he acts accordingly by that faith. It's interesting that by listening to Hushai's counsel, Absalom makes a fatal mistake. He will now give David enough time to flee into the wilderness and make the necessary arrangements to defeat Absalom on the field of battle. Hushai tells the priests who are also on David's side, Zadok and Abiathar, what he has done. And then he says, get word to David. I bought him some time. Now tell him, do not hesitate. Get into the wilderness because Absalom is going to be chasing you down. And so the priests send these two youths, Jonathan and Ahimaaz, to deliver the message to David. And in verses 17 to 20 of chapter 17, it says this, Jonathan and Ahimaaz were staying in Enrogel, a female servant who was to go inform them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they could not risk being seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So the two of them left at once and went to the house of a man in Baharim. He had a well in his courtyard, and they climbed down into it. His wife took a covering and spread it out over the opening of the well and scattered grain over it. No one knew anything about it. When Absalom's men came to the woman at the house, they asked, Where are Ahimez and Jonathan? The woman answered them, They crossed over the brook. The men searched but found no one, so they returned to Jerusalem. Even here, we see God's hand at work to protect David. And as these guys are heading to tell David, Absalom catches wind of this and sends some men to intercept them. And even there, they find the favor of this woman who hides them in this well and they're able to actually escape and make it, we're told, all the way to David's camp where he warns David, and based on that message, they cross the Jordan River and get into safety. And I think that is the message that God 
is giving to us this morning as well. If you know me and my heart for you, you know that I can be trusted. And to trust me means to orient your entire life around that trust. And every choice that you would make and every relationship that impacts your life, every decision you make for your career, every decision you make with your money, in all of these things, if you have a heart of wisdom, you will center your life around the promises that I have given you. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 32, echo that sentiment that God shared to David, to us in the New Testament. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That's the promise of God, is to have a heart of wisdom and make good choices in your life. Is not about having the most intelligence. It's not about being the smartest person in the room. It is about putting your fear in its proper place, fearing the Lord above everything else, and honoring him in every choice that you make in your life. As I close, I thought, just this is kind of a last-minute thing, but I, I wanted to actually show you a movie clip from one of my favorite movies. I actually showed it at ICC in my first year of pastoring here, which was like a decade ago. It's actually one of my favorite movies uh, called Stranger Than Fiction. If you haven't ever watched it, uh, I recommend you to watch it. Um, it's this story about this guy named Harold Crick, who's an IRS agent who lives a very empty life. His entire world is just numbers, and he has no meaningful relationships. He lives utterly alone. And at the beginning of the movie, this narrator this, that, that's uh, played by Emma Watson is, uh, Emma Thompson, <laughs> is just basically giving a commentary on everything that he's going through. Uh, and then it breaks all movie convention because suddenly... Uh, Harold begins to hear what the narrator is saying, which is something that's never supposed to happen in any stories. Um, but suddenly when he hears the narrator talking, it changes his life forever. And so I, I'm going to show you kind of a shortened clip that I originally showed that's just going to run about four minutes, and then I'll just wrap things up and we'll, we'll uh, respond in prayer. If one had asked Harold, he would have said that this particular Wednesday was exactly like all the Wednesdays prior. And he began it the same way he... And he began it the same way he always did. Hello? He began it the same way he always did. When others' minds would... Hello, is someone there? When others' minds would fantasize about their upcoming day or even try to grip onto the final moments of their dreams, Harold just counted brush strokes. 
All right, who just said Harold just counted brush strokes? But how do you know I'm counting brush strokes? Hello? It was remarkable how the simple, modest... It was remarkable how... It was remarkable how the simple, modest elements of Harold's life, so often taken for granted, would become the catalyst for an entirely new life. Harold ran for the bus, his stiff leather shoes making a terrible squeaking sound as they flexed against the asphalt. And though this was an extraordinary day, a day to be remembered for the rest of Harold's life, Harold just thought it was a Wednesday. I'm sorry, did you hear that? The voice, did you, did you hear it? Harold just thought it was a Wednesday? No, no, it is Wednesday. No, no, did you, did you hear it? Harold just thought it was a Wednesday. Who's Harold? I, I'm Harold. Harold, it's okay, it's Wednesday. No, no, I... Never mind. Dude, I just totally caught some insurance adjuster claiming his jet ski as a work vehicle. <laughs> I tell you, it is a shame they didn't give out an Auditor of the Year award. Dude? You okay? Dave, I'm being followed. How are you being followed? You're not moving. It's by voice. What? I'm being followed by a woman's voice. Oh. Okay. Uh, wh what is she saying? She's narrating. Oh. Harold, you're staring in boxes. What is she narrating? No, no, no. I, I had to stop filing. Watch, watch, listen. The sound the paper made against the folder had the same tone as a wave scraping against sand. And when Harold thought about it, he listened to enough waves every day to constitute what he imagined to be a deep and endless ocean. Did you hear that? You mean you're filing? No, 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 the voice. No. The frightening part is sometimes I do imagine a deep and endless ocean. What ocean? The one made by the sun. Forget it. New audits. Have a good day. Thank you. This uh, narrator breaks into Harold's life, in essence, to try to tell Harold there's a greater purpose in your life. There's something about to happen today on this Wednesday that's going to transform your life and change the life of somebody else as well. And I don't want to spoil it if you haven't watched the movie yet. Um, but that's the entire mission of this narrator is to try to awaken Harold to the fact that there is a much greater story written about his life than he even realizes. And I think... That's true of our lives as well. I think the truth is that we may claim to be followers of Christ, but in many ways, 
live like functional atheists in which God does not factor in almost anything that goes on in the course of a day. And in its worst expressions, we live in almost animalistic ex existence. Just survival, just survival of the fittest. Just tit for tat. You do this to me, I will do this to you. And I think when we're talking about entrusting ourselves to God and gaining this heart of wisdom is to say, to hear the narration of our life, the narration of Scripture that says, God is writing an awesome story in your life, something much greater than you even realize. And through all of the pitfalls and pains and suffering and through all of the garbage you have to deal with and through all of the difficult people that are in your life, God is writing a story, an awesome story of redemption. And it takes a heart of faith, a heart of wisdom to recognize that we're part of that story that God is writing. Let's pray. I think if given the opportunity, there's not one of us in this room that would say, oh, yeah, sure, I would love to be wiser. I would love to be able to make wise choices in my life. But the truth is most of us actually have the cheap wisdom of hindsight. It feels like it's only in retrospect that we catch our mistakes and realize all the dumb things we've done. Um, I think real biblical wisdom is the wisdom of foresight of making choices for a better future and avoiding some of those costly mistakes that we can make in our life. And we can't get to that place through just intelligence, through analytical problem solving. The Bible says ultimately this issue of wisdom is a matter of the heart, not the head. And as we saw in this example of Absalom and his so-called wisdom, all that was needed to get him swayed was to appeal to his fears and to his pride. And I think that's very telling for us too because I would actually argue that's probably very true of most of our lives as well. Most of us are actually in truth ruled by our fears. Or we are driven by our pride, things that feed our ego. And so... What it requires is nothing less than a heart absolutely surrendered to the authority of God in our lives, to entrust ourselves to him and his care over us. And I want you to just imagine the implications of that priority in your life in terms of how that could impact every relationship in your life and the kind of choices that you would make in them. What it would mean if you put God first and him as the greatest reality, as the greatest authority, as the most powerful presence, the one who is active in every way. Imagine if you could hear the narration of your life and hear what God is saying about the hidden things that he is doing. And I want you to understand sometimes what faithless position we come from. Just, we just react in the moment to the thing that's right in front of us. And we're not seeing that there's something greater that God is accomplishing. As Paul says, if God would give up his own son for you, what would he withhold from you that's for your good? And the truth is, when we're going through hard times, it is so hard to believe that truth. 
That is why we need faith to keep pressing on and doing the right thing and pursuing God even in that difficulty, believing that God is writing a greater story in our lives, that he is worthy of our trust. Would you just pray that for a few minutes and our worship team is going to lead us in a time of closing response. Let's pray.